Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shank. The late Daniel Patrick Moynihan is often quoted as saying, you can have your own opinion, but not your own facts. This is as true in looking at the world as it is here at home. There are lots of opinions about the U.S. role and U.S. actions in the world, specifically in the Middle East. However, facts come first, and part of those facts is an understanding of the people, the history, and the nuance of the region. Our domestic political debates every day talk about who best understands the American people. Why should we conduct our global affairs without a similar understanding of the peoples of the world? When it comes to the Middle East, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, and even our international policy architecture in the post-war era, few understand the people, history, and nuance better than my guest Zolmay Khalilzad. He has served four presidents, was special advisor to the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Planning, Director of Strategy, Doctrine, and Force Structure at RAND, the United States Ambassador to Afghanistan, the U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, and the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Now he looks back at that history in his history. In his book, The Envoy, From Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World, it is my pleasure to welcome Zolme Khalilzad to the program. Mr. Ambassador, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's very great to be with you, Jeff. Uh, a pleasure. Great to have you here. You know, political leaders, government officials all the time love to talk about their journeys from small-town roots to the pinnacles of power in Washington and other places. Your journey, though, from small town in Afghanistan to Kabul and then finding your way to New York and to the U.S., Talk a little bit about the scope, the turbulence of that journey before we talk a little bit about the world. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, that was a fantastic journey. and uh, I was, as you said, uh, born in Afghanistan in Mazar-e-Sharif, a small town of 50,000 uh, uh, in uh, 1951 uh, in, a, in a city that was peaceful but very underdeveloped in a traditional uh, family. Um, um, I was one of 13 children that was uh, born to my mother who had gotten married uh, at the age of uh, 12 or 13 and gave birth to her first child at the age of 15. Uh, and uh, six of her children uh, died uh, before uh, they reached uh, their teenage years, and uh, uh, Mazar-e-Sharif did not have uh, electricity, it did not uh, have a television station, there was no phones, uh, and uh, uh, then from Mazar, uh, I went to Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, when I was uh, 13, uh, a city of 500,000, more developed than Kabul, but not by a lot. And then uh, I won a, a scholarship called the American Field Service uh, that brought young people from around the world from uh, high school, generally juniors uh, in high school, uh, to the United States. And uh, uh, these young people lived with American families. I lived with a family in California for a year in uh, a place called Ceres in San Joaquin Valley, 
near Modesto. And, uh, and that journey, the experience in New York, uh, seeing this huge uh, city, uh, it was very, it was in August uh, and it was very hot and humid. Uh, and I had never experienced air conditioning uh, before. Uh, uh, I thought on the streets I was going to suffocate uh, from the combination of heat and humidity and these masses of people, because even Kabul had a population of uh, less than 500,000. That was the biggest city I had, I had uh, been to before. And then uh, traveling on a bus across the United States and living with this very nice uh, uh, family uh, 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 and uh, it, 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 it transformed my world it, 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 it had a huge impact on, on my life uh, so uh, uh, that was my first exposure uh, to, to the world and to the United States and talk a little bit about where you thought your career was going to go originally even when you were at the University of Chicago well, I thought uh, that I was going to go uh, uh, back to Afghanistan, and then uh, uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan occurred before I finished the University of Chicago. And um, I had accidentally uh, met a professor who had a big, big, big impact on my career uh, subsequently, and that was Professor Albert Walser, one of our great nuclear strategists uh, he is the author of, uh, of the first strike, second strike distinction. And uh, once I knew I couldn't go back, uh, I thought I would teach uh, uh, at a university in the United States. And the first uh, uh, job I got uh, was to teach at Columbia University in New York. I, I did not think uh, ever that I would uh, I would. Uh, work for the U.S. government, uh, I thought I would become a, a university professor uh, and uh, be an academic. In fact, you talk about w when you were doing work with Wallstetter, that that was before it, you had become a citizen and that some of the work you were doing became classified. You couldn't even see it at that point. That is true. One of the things that I did with uh, Professor Wallstetter uh, was uh, uh, to work on uh, nuclear weapons proliferation. Uh, and particularly in places like Pakistan, which has since has acquired nuclear weapons, then we were discussing the potential uh, uh, for Pakistan and others, Iran, uh, and uh, so many other countries to uh, possess nuclear weapons. How might they uh, acquire nuclear weapons, particularly uh, if they use civilian nuclear power as a cover for developing a military nuclear program and uh, in the process of speculating and writing uh, uh, about the different paths, possible paths that they could exploit, uh, I had uh, said things uh, that uh, was uh, classified by the government. I was, a, uh, I was on a student visa then. Uh, later on, I became a permanent representative and an American citizen. But, uh, but you're right, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't see my own writing for a while. <laughs> after I had turned it over to the client. Certainly another key turning point for you, and, and as it was a key turning point for the world in, in the modern era with the events of 9-11. Talk a little bit about where you were at the time and, and your thoughts and experiences. Well, I was uh, working uh, 
uh, at the White House, uh, uh, I have uh, I, I had been the president's special assistant. Uh, my responsibilities covered Afghanistan, and we had our morning uh, staff meeting on 9/11, uh, which uh, Condi Rice chaired. And before starting the meeting, we knew that uh, uh, the first plane had hit uh, one of the towers, uh, and uh, there was an assumption that that was an accident, that the plane had lost its way. And uh, we were in the situation room where the uh, staff meetings occurred, and uh, someone walked in with a note that the second uh, plane had hit the second tower, and uh, 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 Condi Rice got up, closed her book, and quickly walked out. Uh, Steve Hadley, uh, her deputy, followed, and uh, we, I went back to my office, which was in the old executive office building uh, across from the <clears throat> West Wing, and uh, uh, convened my own staff meeting, which was typical, and uh, as we were discussing uh, what happened and watching the TV in my office, uh, an order came over the uh, telecon that uh, the broadcasting system inside the old executive office building that we should leave immediately and go outside and we were guided to the Lafayette Park across the White House uh, and uh, uh, because there was uh, later on, I found out fear that another plane was on its way uh, that, that uh, uh, was uh, targeting perhaps the White House. And we heard about while we were waiting outside about the Pentagon, and I had been in charge of the transition from Clinton to Bush at the Pentagon, so I had quite a few friends there, and I had served in the Pentagon in the earlier period. So I was trying desperately to uh, reach uh, my friends in the Pentagon, and I was desperately trying to uh, reach uh, uh, my wife uh, and my son, who went to Georgetown to tell them I was I was okay, and how they, uh, to reassure them, because there was all kinds of confused reporting that the State Department was hit, maybe the White House was even perhaps may have been hit, and the phone lines were down. I couldn't get a hold of anyone, so. Uh, then uh, we uh, we were told to to go to go home and uh, and and later on that day I came back to the White House and our world changed dramatically and that day our work schedules and what we were focused on and uh, uh, the issues that became important uh, uh, all changed uh, uh, on that day. Was there ever time? either in the aftermath of, of the events or later on, even when you were working on the envoy, to really reflect on the unity of all that, certainly that you had seen in your career, the connection, the link between the post-war world as it evolved, the collapse of the Soviet Union, on to the events of 9-11 and what has transpired in the Middle East. Of course, especially uh, uh, in two periods, there was a time for reflection. Uh, one was uh, in the 1992, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, I was the head of uh, defense uh, policy planning in the Pentagon, 
and uh, you know policy planning jobs have become interesting and useful uh, uh, particularly when there are big changes then uh, because typically uh, when the world is going on and there's no big change uh, there, there isn't much of a role for policy planners because the plans already exist and it's, it's being implemented but at uh, the end of the Soviet Union, this uh, monumental struggle that we and the Soviets were involved in for decades, uh, with the end of the Soviet Union, and the question was, where was the world going? Uh, what should the role of the United States be? Uh, what are the challenges that the U.S. Uh, uh, would face and which ones are uh, the ones that the U.S. should focus on based on what the U.S. decides on its role, its interests, its, uh, its objectives, its strategy, its plans. So that, And we thought at that time uh, that uh, the issues that would become more important uh, in the aftermath of the uh, uh, Soviet disintegration were, were going to be regional issues uh, and uh, struggles for uh, domination or rivalries uh, in regions between regional powers seeking primacy and the increased role of non-state actors following asymmetrical uh, strategies uh, against the, uh, the United States uh, and others and the important role that uh, the technology was also playing, perhaps bringing about a revolution, and that meant in, uh, also not only in terms of proliferation generally of nuclear weapons, of missiles, but also of cyber, of information technologies, uh, and that the U.S. needed to adapt. And our fear was uh, that, uh, uh, that the, having won the Cold War, that the U.S., uh, uh, being at the top might be uh, satisfied with itself and and uh, n n not be as uh, uh, as motivated uh, as perhaps when we face the big threat uh, to be innovative, to be competitive, to uh, be to be to be, uh, to be uh, 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 as uh, rigorous. Uh, energetic as those powers that may be seeking to uh, to uh, uh, compete with us or reach our status or surpass our status and these uh, and these other smaller groups and entities uh, that were going to become more important had that been the case after the fall of the Soviet Union had that view prevailed to what extent do you think, hypothetically, that might have changed events as they evolved towards 9-11? Well, uh, I think that uh, uh, a policy of uh, uh, remaining very engaged and uh, paying attention to these uh, uh, sort of non-state actors uh, in the age of globalization and technology uh, transformation, perhaps we would have paid more attention uh, to places that were uh, distant 
or perceived to be distant uh, and of uh, no importance, uh, such as Afghanistan, uh, because uh, uh, what happened was that in the uh, later stage of the Cold War, we were very engaged in Afghanistan, uh, helping Afghans who were fighting the Soviets who had occupied it. And we succeeded beyond expectation um, when the Soviets were uh, coerced under uh, Mikhail Gorbachev to withdraw. And then we abandoned Afghanistan, and in that vacuum, uh, the civil war uh, took place among various factions, and the, uh, the uh, Al-Qaeda uh, terrorist movement uh, moved in. And uh, uh, we uh, did not pay enough attention to Afghanistan, uh, not surprisingly given uh, that it was a distant land, um, not much awareness of it, and uh, this uh, uh, threat of, uh, of uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Taliban, Afghanistan, eventually, as you know, resulted in the attack on 9-11. There would have been period in retrospect that action by the United States could have uh, perhaps uh, avoided, uh, precluded, prevented, and the problem uh, uh, becoming uh, what it became, uh, the attack uh, against the United States. Even in the post-9-11 period, talk a little bit about how difficult it was for you as somebody that understood both this world and the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan to convey, as you said before, someplace that was so far away, to convey to your colleagues and, and in turn for them to convey to the country a different place, a different culture, different ideas that really were, were not easy for Americans to grasp. Well, of course, it was uh, 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 not easy even for our leaders to understand because uh, our leaders in the national security establishment were the products of the Cold War. Uh, they were great experts uh, in arms control. They were great experts in knowing the Soviet Union. Uh, that was their formative year. They knew about Soviet military doctrine. Uh, they knew about communist ideology, Soviet communist ideology. Uh, they knew Eastern Europe, uh, Europe uh, quite well. Uh, but uh, Afghanistan, uh, that part of the world, uh, uh, no. Uh, and so, uh, 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 one of the first issues uh, uh, in, in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was, uh, you know, Afghanistan. Uh, uh, we have to do something about it. Uh, we have to uh, coerce the Taliban uh, to uh, um, uh, turn over Al-Qaeda to us. If not, go in there. Uh, isn't that a place that uh, foreign powers have had a hard time? Uh, several empires have uh, uh, disintegrated, or Afghanistan experiences have helped them disintegrate. Uh, who are the Taliban, and uh, you know what do they believe in, and uh, the whole history of the region, the composition of the population of the region, the struggles that go on there uh, uh, was uh, was. Uh, 
uh, was uh, um, uh, uh, quite uh, uh, surprising to many, and they didn't have the the feel on, on their fingertips, as the uh, Germans say, uh, saying uh, says, uh, for this region. And I think that was one of the challenges and the and the and the uh, problems uh, affecting uh, our policies. Uh, towards the region. You had a continuity of policy in some respects. You had been there in the George H.W. Bush administration in the, both the run-up to the Iraq War, the first Iraq War, and the aftermath of that war when there was a huge push then on the part of some people in the administration to overthrow Saddam at that point. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I had been at the State Department at the end of Iran-Iraq War uh, during the Reagan administration, and uh, uh, that war ended with Iraq having the upper hand, and then Iraq under Saddam used that advantage to invade Kuwait, and uh, President Bush Sr. drew a line uh, and uh, and. Uh, in the sand and said that, that uh, invasion will not stand and we were effective in pushing uh, the Iraqi forces out. And they, as this was happening, as Saddam's forces appeared to be not as strong as capable vis-a-vis -vis U.S. forces that some had feared, uh, uh, then the discussion was should the U.S. change its objectives and seek a change in Iraq, more a more fundamental uh, perhaps encourage a different officer uh, to take over and then maybe evolve Iraq towards, a dem towards democracy. And others, uh, including obviously the, the, the Secretary of Defense at that time, Dick Cheney, the Chairman of the Joint Chief, Colin Powell, and ultimately uh, uh, the President uh, decided against that, and, uh, uh, believing that we had achieved what we had set to do and that uh, 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 the, it was time uh, to bring the troops home uh, to celebrate this great victory. Not only we had won the Cold War, but we had also won, uh, 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 or we were on the verge of winning the Cold War. We were, uh, you know, we had beaten the Vietnam syndrome uh, that we couldn't win wars decisively, and the, the experience of Vietnam had a uh, a negative effect on the on the uh, on the uh, perceptions of Americans about use of force abroad, uh, and and so uh, the decision was made not to go to Baghdad. But at the end, however, we did something that some uh, of us felt uneasy with, and that was to leave Saddam in place but also to impose draconian sanctions on the Iraqis, uh, uh, which uh, caused a huge amount of suffering because of the way Saddam responded to those sanctions. Uh, they were very comprehensive to get Saddam to cooperate with the UN's uh, effort to disarm it. And, and sanctions were one of the instruments of containing Saddam. So you had the Iraqis stuck with this horrible dictator who had used chemical weapons against its own people, and also with these sanctions. And uh, some had felt that 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 had been a problematic policy. So there was uh, a celebration on the one hand, but some discomfort and unhappiness on the other. 
And talk a little bit about your more recent roles as ambassador to Afghanistan, as ambassador to Iraq, and then the United Nations. It seems that, and, and even as you write about it, at every turn, you entered these jobs, you took on these responsibilities, always with part of the goal being to fix the mess that had preceded you. Right, right, exactly. Well, yeah, well, I thought, first of all, it was a great honor uh, uh, to represent the United States. Uh, I, uh, you know, I would I'd never expected to uh, to uh, that I would achieve uh, uh, that sort of stature. Uh, to, and uh, I was I was I was uh, uh, overjoyed. And of course, the challenges were enormous. These were not ordinary uh, appointments, particularly Iraq and Afghanistan. These were war zones. Uh, at the personal level, of course, I had uh, my own family and little kids uh, that I was leaving behind, but uh, uh, and they uh, could not go with me, and uh, the, their concerns, their worry. Uh, one time, my wife had gotten a call. She, Cheryl, uh, from Secretary Rice, to uh, with the intent to to thank her for her sacrifices. But uh, when she received the call from the op operations center, they said the Secretary of State wants to speak with you. She thought that I must have been killed. Uh, that, that shocked her. But there was also, of course, the challenges of uh, of uh, the responsibility for the lives of uh, all uh, the people who are there and that your um, the ambassador's uh, uh, um, responsibility and then uh, you know helping countries uh, in the in the, in a war zone to uh, reach agreement on a new compact because we were we had helped them uh, overthrow the existing government but they need to to agree on uh, what kind of a government they would want to have going forward essentially new national compacts, and I, 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 tr I tried to do that both in Iraq and, uh, and Afghanistan, and then especially in a place like Afghanistan where the, uh, we had not appreciated how desperate the circumstances were. Here is a country of 30 million, and it had only uh, less than $200 million in its bank account uh, of a country of 30 million, and there was uh, 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 no institutions to speak of, with very few kids going to school, uh, terrible medical circumstances, no police, no army. Uh, uh, I just was shocked at so what we had taken on, how, and especially given our objective that we didn't want Afghanistan once again to become a place that uh, uh, terrorists could find a home which meant do we control the territory ourselves to solve this strategic problem or do we help the Afghans uh, um, uh, build the institutions to do it themselves and given where they were capability-wise, the human capital as well as the physical infrastructure and institutional infrastructure, that it, this was going to be a long-term project and then what do you do about the very difficult neighborhoods in which uh, particularly the Pakistanis uh, were playing both to, uh, to be our friends, to help us on the one hand, but also to work against us because they had their own ideas about Afghanistan, which they wanted to dominate, and the Afghans were, obje uh, were opposed to, and they were providing sanctuary to those who were fighting us. 
And in the case of Iraq, we did some uh, uh, self-inflicted uh, wounds on ourselves uh, by uh, changing plans after going there rather than reforming the army. We had dissolved the army uh, and we didn't want to have a large force uh, there to establish security and yet there was no local force after our dissolving it. And there was great uh, uh, disagreement uh, um, among Iraqis about the future to get them to agree on a national compact was particularly challenging. And then again, like uh, like uh, in Afghanistan, a difficult neighborhood in which uh, Iran and Syria was were particularly trying to make it difficult for us. So, uh, 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 and Washington had uh, decided uh, on some of the big issues without the full detailed understanding uh, of all the issues that we would face uh, 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 and and uh, the challenges uh, uh, and both what we wanted to achieve and some of the unintended consequences of what we were trying to achieve. So I, in both cases, tried to work with the Iraqis and the Afghans as closely as I could to encourage cooperation uh, and to uh, encourage reaching agreement and start processes for building the institutions that they needed. And they were, were difficult, uh, difficult processes. And finally, Mr. Ambassador, what is the single biggest challenge we face in that part of the world today? Well, the biggest uh, uh, challenge is, uh, uh, is from inside the world of Islam, there is a crisis of civilization that has entangled or inter, uh, interwined uh, uh, with the uh, geopolitical rivalries in the region. The uh, uh, crisis of Islamic civilization is uh, uh, this, that uh, many people, Muslim leaders, uh, in the intellectuals, political leaders for decades, if not centuries, have uh, uh, asked the question that, uh, uh, you know, what has gone wrong? Because uh, uh, at one time they believe, and historically it's true, that they were uh, doing well, uh, and they were on the march, and uh, uh, they were innovative, they were uh, successful, they were preeminent in the world, and then they declined. And and, uh, other powers did better and some even came and, and into the area and drew borders uh, and uh, dominated the region. And uh, uh, one response to this change in circumstance has been this extremist interpretation of Islam that the reason Islam is, uh, Muslims are not doing well is because they abandoned the true path and they blame the West for the decline. And in this extremist interpretation, that is a terrorist dimension. And, uh, and the second factor that inter, uh, intertwines with this is rivalry in the Middle East between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey as to who is going to be the preeminent Muslim or regional power. And they're using extremists, uh, uh, even terrorists, uh, as proxies in this fight for preeminence. And then, and this struggle, in my view, will take a very long time. And the challenge for us is how we protect ourselves uh, against uh, the threats that emanate uh, from these crises or, and, and, and rivalries while we work diplomatically with others and uh, uh, like-minded people in the region to, uh, uh, that they overcome this challenge, which will take a long time, but they would have to solve it 
we can't solve it uh, for them, we can help, uh, but how do we play our role along with others, uh, both in terms of protecting ourselves on the one hand, but also facilitating and helping the evolution uh, of the region in a positive direction. You know, uh, uh, I fear that we could face even worse circumstances that we are facing now in this region because the, the potential for the positive transformation and a cooperative arrangement like what happened in Europe after World War II is, is quite small, the probability right now. And maybe worse things have to happen like they happened in Europe before the regional players uh, uh, come to a judgment, perhaps with the help of the United States and others, to reach uh, uh, mutual accommodation uh, and some rules uh, 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 that uh, that can let this region develop and become a more stable and peaceful place. But the prospects are not very good right now. The prospects are for things to get worse before they get better. Zolme Khalilzad, his book is The Envoy, From Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World. Mr. Ambassador, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you.